Good morning. There we go. Good morning. Please open your Bibles to John. Well, we can start in chapter one, but we'll be all over the place. And you'll find the notes this morning's message in the bulletin. And let me remind you that last week, we began our study of John's gospel. Um, If we average nine verses a week, that'll be a hundred message study. Um, And so I would estimate we'll be in John three, three and a half, maybe even four years, given that we pause periodically for um, special Sundays, series here and there. And so because our study of John will be so extensive, because we'll be there for a while, I think it's worth taking our time getting started, framing the book. And so last week, we addressed some of the beginning introductory questions. Who is the author? And we know from John chapter 21, the author is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I argued that I believe it's pretty clear that that is the apostle John. That's also the universal testimony of the church um, that we saw from the evidence of church history. Then we asked, when did John write? And we suggested late, later than the other gospels, after Peter's death, after the destruction of Jerusalem, after 70 AD, probably in the 80s and 90s. Um, And and let me suggest you why that's significant. We'll, We'll be building on that this morning. John's placement in the canon, where he's writing in relationship to the other authors, Um, is going to be significant for if he is or is not interacting with the other Gospels. I think he is. I think he is. Then we considered who is he writing to. And we, we drew three conclusions internally from studying the book. The first, he's writing to people who are not immediately familiar with Jewish language, geography, or customs. They, they may, they're, they're aware of their Old Testament, but he's got to tell them what rabbi means. He's got to tell them what Messiah means. He's got to tell them what the Greek name, the Sea of Galilee is, the Sea of Tiberias. He's got to tell them that Jews don't have dealings with Samaritans. He is not assuming that we are ancient Near East scholars. And that's significant as well because if John is showing that he's aware when he thinks we may need supplemental information, then I think we ought to trust him to give us that supplemental information. Which means then that John's writing a document that he thinks can be understood. We don't need to reach outside to to, uh, extra-biblical realities and evidence to argue what John means. He he knows his readers aren't scholars with first-century Judaism. He knows that, and he evidences that regularly, and he supplements for that. And so we can be thankful for that. Third, we saw that first that they are not scholars of first century Judaism. Second, that they know their Bibles. We looked at some of the extensive Old Testament quotes. So Judaism, as far as it's revealed in the Old Testament, certainly we're to be responsible for, but the Judaism, especially those 400 years between the close of the canon and John the Baptist crying out in the wilderness, no evidence that we have any knowledge of what's going on there. But we do know our Bibles. And third, that he's writing to people who he thinks may well know key events, key players, key people. We saw how he introduced Andrew as Simon Peter's brother before he introduced Simon Peter. We saw, if you turn to chapter 3, one of the clearest ones. 324, this little aside. For John had not yet been put into prison. 
But nowhere in John's gospel does he record John being put into prison. That only makes sense if he thinks he's linking this with information his readers well, may well be aware of. And then we considered why did he write, and we looked at his thesis statement in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, many other signs Jesus did in the presence of the disciples that were not written, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so we considered that John's fundamental concern is the generation and preservation of faith. The generation and the preservation of faith. And not just faith in the abstract. I'll talk to people sometimes and say, I believe in God or even I believe in Jesus. John is more specific than that. He wants you to believe two things about Jesus. That you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Lord's promised anointed one. And we argued that from John's gospel, the fundamental notion there in John is the atoning sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is that sacrifice. He is the one who has come to make all things right. He is, as the Samaritans say in chapter 4, the Savior of the world. And also that he's the Son of God. And by Son of God, we looked in chapter 5 explicitly, where Jesus means by that title equality with God. He made himself to be an equal with God. He is worshipped as God in John's gospel. Thomas, my Savior, and my God. He claims the Old Testament name of God. In chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. So specifically, John wants us to either start believing, or I think even more emphatically, to keep believing that Jesus is both the Lord's promised Messiah, his promised sacrifice, and God in the flesh. That's why he's writing. Now, let's begin from that backdrop, picking up further. And just, just in case this seems like this is a long introduction, my plan is to, to land in the very first sentence of the book this week. The next time I'm in the pulpit, I won't be here next Sunday. I'm, I'm traveling to do a funeral, and um, one of our own will be preaching to you, God willing. But when I come back, we're going to look at an overview of the outline of John, and then in that same message, really dive into and be done with introductory matters, begin the prologue. So, let's first consider with that background John's relationship to the other Gospels. And again, let me explain to you why I think this is a significant question to ask. If you'll remember in our study of Luke, I emphasized repeatedly that by Luke's introduction to Theophilus, my starting assumption is Luke is writing a coherent, self-contained document. He, he, he intends it to be understood by Theophilus. He makes no reference that Theophilus needs other books other than the Old Testament. And so I really resisted in going through Luke, trying to answer problems, interpret issues in Luke by going to Matthew or going to Mark, because there's no indication Theophilus had Matthew or Mark. And so the, the, the assumption being Luke, being a competent writer, wrote a document that could be understood. But if, as I'm arguing, John wrote last, and if, as I'm arguing, John is aware of the other Gospels and what they teach then that might alter how we move forward. So how does John relate to the other Gospels? And, and quickly here, point A, John helps explain some of the materials in the other Gospels. John helps explain some of the material in the other Gospels. And remember, I said last week it was 80%. I was reading this week, actually 92% of John's Gospel is unique to John. 
And one of the ways he's able, because we saw that he had plenty of material, to handpick this material is if he's aware of what's in the other Gospels. He's filling in the gaps. He's supplementing them and explaining them in some places. So just two, two points to this demonstration of this. First is that John's Gospel helps explain that, Ju- that Jesus' Judean ministry accounts for the rising hostility. If you just read... Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you might get the impression that Jesus spent most of his time prior to the crucifixion week in Galilee, which is a backwater. It's Hoboken. The Jews said, does anything good come out of Galilee? And yet, throughout the Gospels, there's this rising hostility. It doesn't make a ton of sense in Matthew, Mark, and Luke as they tell it to account for how could a, a guy teaching and largely hanging out in Galilee be raising such national ire and resentment. Well, John's gospel, starting primarily in chapter 5, showing Jesus' encounters in Judea and in Jerusalem, gives explanation for and supplements for how it is that in the other gospels the, the, the tension is rising. Um, we also see in uh, John's gospel the explanation that Jesus interacted with the disciples before calling them. I remember as a new Christian how surprised I was when I read John's gospel to realize that Jesus, when he calls Peter from the boat in Luke 5, that's not the first time he met Peter. That in John chapter 1, we see events that happened before John's arrest, that reference that he makes, helping us place this within the timeline of the other Gospels, showing us that Jesus had interacted with many of the apostles prior to calling them. It makes a bit more sense. Rather than Peter seeing a man he doesn't know, a stranger saying, come follow me, and he just leaves his nets, it makes better sense. It helps explain what's going on that Jesus had already um, brought Peter to faith in himself, that Peter had already encountered him, that his brother had already said in chapter 1, we have found the Messiah, 141. So those are some of the things that help to explain it. One other example. You'll remember one of the chief accusations brought against Jesus at his mock trial is that he would destroy the temple. So in Mark 14, 58... The, the, the witnesses say, we have heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days we'll build another. And again, in Mark 15, 29, they deride him with this, with this claim on the cross. Those who passed by, Mark 15, 29, derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. It even continues on to the charge against Stephen in Acts, in Acts 6, 14. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. But interestingly, nowhere in the Synoptic Gospels does it record Jesus making that claim. That's in John 2. So the Synoptics tell you this was the charge, the accusation brought against him. And then John, helpfully, in chapter 219, gives us the place where Jesus said this. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So... John then can be used to help explain, help give context for some of the events in the Gospels. And I would suggest to you that the reverse is true as well, that the synoptics then can inform some of John's Gospel. For instance, if you're in chapter 1, and if all you had was John, let me show you how he introduces Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life. And life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not 
overcome it. Then look down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's John's introduction to the incarnation and his introduction to Jesus as the word. Now imagine you don't have the other gospels. You may find it strange then when in John 6.42 you read, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does the word who was God have a father and mother? It looks as though John is presupposing we have some of this content. There's no explanation, no attempted explanation given. And so John, well aware of the two genealogies, John, well aware of the birth narratives, assumes them, and he comes at it from his angle. So they help fill in some blanks here. One one other example. In chapter 12, we won't look at it, but in chapter 12, some Greeks come to want to see Jesus, and Philip hesitates to bring them to Jesus. And nothing in John's gospel gives a clear account of why that might be. But in the other gospels, we know that Jesus had commanded the disciples not to go to the Greeks. might help explain why Philip hesitates to bring the Gentiles to Jesus. Um. In Matthew 10.5, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. So as we go forward in our study then, if John's aware of supplementing some of the gospel material and some of the gospel material may supplement John, we, we may more frequently compare, consider what the other gospels have to say as they might help frame and shed light into John's narrative. Okay. So John's relationship to the other Gospels, he helps explain them, and they at times may help inform him. Point number two, key features of John's Gospel. And this could be a long list. I just picked three things that I thought were significant. What I mean by features is John's writing style, things that occur in the writing that you may miss or may surprise you. The first is that John really has many large discourses. There are no parables. There are no short sayings. John tends to have large events with large discussions following. Turn turn to chapter 5. All of chapter 5, all of it, is one miracle followed by a discourse, which is Jesus speaking, helping frame, explain, and unpack the significance of that miracle. Look to chapter 6, same thing. One miracle, or you could say two if you add the walking on water, the feeding of the 5,000, and then the I am the bread of life discourse. Chapter 9, the same thing. John is far more a dozen or so key big events in the first 12 chapters than it is lots of short little things. So that's unique to John. And so frequently we'll get a miracle, we'll get a sign, and then we'll get a discourse by Jesus to help explain the significance of that sign. Second, John's use of the term the Jews. John's use of the term the Jews. Some have actually accused John of being anti-Semitic. No, no, especially back when they tried to suggest it was being written in the 4th century before we discovered fragments of John that date to the 120s. But it's largely because of how negatively he puts the Jews. And you've got to understand that when John says the Jews, frequently he doesn't mean Israelites. He means a subset of the Jews. He means the unbelieving Jews. Let me show you. In John chapter 1, verse 19... This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, 
But then John tells us helpfully a little later who he means by the Jews. Look at verse 24. Now, they'd been sent by the Pharisees. Now, there's kind of your key. Frequently when John means the Jews, what he means is the Pharisees. I'll quickly give you some examples to show why this is, is important to consider. In chapter 7, verse 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Well, surely the Jews are also in Galilee, right? Well, no, he's made it clear. He means the unbelieving religious leaders. In John 7, 12 through 13, there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. But all these people, considering this, have got to be Jews, right? No, John's established Jews frequently means negative, unbelieving religious leaders. Um, so that's, that's one other thing. Point C here, last thing to consider, and this, this could have been 18 long. I just tried to narrow it down to three, is John's could use a literary device with Jesus' hour. Turn, turn to chapter two. It shows up first in chapter two. Um, there's a wedding at Cana, and Mary, Jesus' mother, is somehow connected to it such that when they run out of wine, she thinks she'll call her son. Look at um, chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Interesting. Go over to chapter 4. He's talking to the Samaritan woman. And in John chapter 4, verse 21 to 23, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Jump ahead to chapter 7. Similar situation to what happened in chapter 2. Family members of Jesus are trying to get him to do something, and the reason he gives for not doing it is his hour has not yet come. Um, look down in verse 6. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. I don't think that means anything significantly different than my hour. But your time is always. And then in 7.30, they're trying to arrest Jesus, but they aren't able to. Why? So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. 8.20, same thing. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And all that changes in chapter 12. Turn, turn to chapter 12. John chapter 12 is a hinge chapter in the book. We'll see this next time we study this when we look at the breakdown. But 1 to 12 is a unit, and then 12 becomes the hinge. And in 12, um, 23, finally, Jesus answered them, the hour has come. So in John's gospel, it's coming. It's not yet. It's not yet. They couldn't arrest him because it wasn't time. It wasn't time. Not now. Finally here, it has come. And then Jesus prays regarding this hour in 27 and 28 of chapter 12. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
For this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So what are we to make of this hour? And I want to highlight this because the first time you come across it, it may not jump out at you. But by the time you get to chapter 12 with its repetition, it's significant. It's a central literary device in this book. Um, Your first blank here, I believe his hour is his passion. And the reason I chose passion is it's not just the crucifixion. It's the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension as made clear by 13.1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. So his hour includes not just the cross, but the ascension. It's the whole kit and caboodle. That's Jesus' hour. It's his passion. It's also what consumes his prayer in chapter 17, his high priestly prayer. Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. And and one of the key points John wants to make is that Jesus is in control of his hour. Jesus is sovereignly in control. John doesn't want to be the slightest bit of confusion that you think the crucifixion was an accident. A terrible mistake. No, Jesus is aware of the hour from the beginning. In chapter 2, his mother says, they they ran out of wine. Jesus, it's not time yet. And so he secretly turns the water to wine. I I think the answer being that if he draws too much attention to himself too quickly, the timing will get thrown off. They'll crucify him too soon. So he does meet the need. He does do what his mother is suggesting he do, but he does it secretly, privately. Only his disciples are aware of it. Even the head bridegroom, the head waiter, doesn't know where the wine came from. Because Jesus is in control of his hour. The crucifixion cross is not something that happens to him, but something Jesus moves towards intentionally. Something Jesus moves towards intentionally. Okay. Significant features in John's gospel, which brings us to point three key themes in John's gospel. And again, this could be a long list. We've already looked at the central point. For redundancy's sake, I didn't add that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but that would be the first key theme. That's his central thesis in writing. So in addition to that, let me suggest the following four points with the time we have. I'll pick up from one we looked at last week, which is the nature of true belief. And we, we, we looked at some of the examples. We'll see some of the examples that John is very concerned that we come to faith, but it becomes clear in John's gospel there's something he can call faith that doesn't profit anyone. We saw that in chapter 8 when the Jews believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, and a paragraph later he's telling them, you're of your father, the devil. Jesus can say to Jews who believed in him, quote-unquote, your father's the devil and your will is to do his will. You're seeking to kill me. And so one of John's concerns is to communicate the authentic nature of true faith. This fits in with his pastoral concern. It fits in from an old man writing this gospel, seeing the church, seeing some who profess perhaps falling away and wanting to make it clear you need to believe, but there's something you can call belief. Nicodemus is an example of that. While he was in Jerusalem, chapter 2, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus, for his part, did not entrust himself to them. Huh? And so, piggybacking off that, I want to suggest to you that John wants to show us that true belief endures and obeys. 
True belief endures and obeys. Just look at the last verse of chapter 3. And we'll see this as we go through, but I want you as you're going through the gospel looking for what is the nature, what is the character of true faith? What does it mean to believe? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's an odd juxtaposition. What would you have expected? You would have expected, on the one hand, whoever believes, and then you'd expect whoever does not believe. But John doesn't do that. Whoever believes the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, which I'm asking when I first read this. Well, what about those who believe but don't obey? What about them, John? Clearly, John assumes there are no people who believe but don't obey. He's assuming these things work together in tandem. Those who believe are those who obey. So he can use those interchangeably. In John 14, 15, Jesus says clearly, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Anyway, we've got we to move on. We looked at this last week. Point B, another central theme or, or thing that happens again and again in John's gospel is misunderstanding. Misunderstanding. Uh, I get, there's a lot of references here. You can see them, but we're just going to look at one or two. Look, look to chapter 2. And, and what I mean by misunderstanding is either Jesus' disciples themselves or his audience or other people not getting it. Not getting it. I mean, John really highlights this. I think part of it is that we might be aware that we ourselves might miss it, might not get it as we go through the gospel. But look in chapter 2, 19 to 24. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And to the Jews he saw, can do you understand what he's saying? Oh, no. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Yeah, they, they weren't tracking with him. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered this, that he had said this, and they believed. So even the disciples missed it. When, when, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about you must be born again. Nicodemus is very confused. Here's another guy not tracking with things. In, um, what's the next reference I've got here? And in John 6, we don't have time, but the whole eat my flesh, drink my blood, the crowd really gets confused. In John chapter 7, t- turn to 7. This happens a lot in John's gospel. Jesus speaks, and the people he's talking to don't understand. John seven thirty, starting 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus said to them, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Does this man intend to where does this man intend to go that will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me? Where I am, you cannot come. And there's just example after example after example after example. And I think part of John's purpose in that is we should be aware and not so confident right off the bat that we understand what we're reading. If Jesus' disciples, if Jesus' apostles, if the crowds, if the teachers can miss it, You and I can miss it. You and I can misunderstand it, I believe. Um, Probably the the starkest irony 
An example of this is in 1914, Behold the King of the Jews. And now it's not just misunderstanding, it's dramatic irony. So there's misunderstandings. We've got to move. Point C, another key theme, is Jesus' authority. Closely tied, I believe, with his deity. Jesus' authority. No other gospel that I've read focuses on the issues of authority, which I mean, by what right does he act or speak? The Jews, the Pharisees, are consumed with this issue. Turn, turn to chapter 1. When John the Baptist begins baptizing in the wilderness, they send people out to him. What's their concern? They're not for him or against him. They just want to know, by what authority do you do what you do? Do you have your, your baptism forms filled out and approved? This is the testimony, verse 19, of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. They said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. So the Jews from Jerusalem said, Go find out who this guy is and what he's doing and why he's doing it. And the issue centers around authority. Then in chapter 2, Jesus cleanses the temple, an audacious move, a bold move. And again, they're not for it or against it. They neither condemn it as lawlessness, nor do they celebrate it. What's their question? By what authority do you do this? By what authority do you do this? In verse um, 16 and following, he told those who sold the pigeons, take away these things. And then down in verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They sit on the fence. that They don't approve or disapprove. They just want to know by what authority, by what authority. John focuses on that. That's, that's the subtext of the encounter with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is coming to size Jesus up. Again, neither for or against. He just wants to, he's done some signs. Let's see who this guy is. Let's see who this guy is. His authority questioned. Turn to chapter 7. Probably the most notable section. Seven's remarkable because... Well, I'll just show you. In 7, picking up in verse 14, this is when Jesus goes up to the Feast of Booths. Now, the Feast of Booths is intense. It's intense. It's, okay. Okay, I apologize. Feast of Booths is intense. He goes up. About the middle of the feast, verse 14, Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching. Is John going to tell us what he was teaching? No. No, he's not. That's not what he's interested in here. He began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them. I te- what, what happens? John tells us, Jesus went up to the temple. He was teaching. And what John wants to focus on is the debate afterwards, by what right, by what authority, with what learning did Jesus teach? He's establishing Jesus' authority, his right, his prerogative to teach. And again and again and again in John's gospel, that shows up. I gave you some other references to look at to establish this. It's questioned. And again and again, John gives us the basis for Jesus' authority. Turn to uh, chapter 3. Chapter 3. In the, in the mouth of John the Baptist. In, in John's gospel, John the Baptist isn't John the Baptist. He's John the witness. Again and again, he testifies. He testifies. And he did not deny, but he testified. And the last time we see him in John's gospel, he's doing exactly that, pointing away from himself, pointing to Christ about Jesus' authority. 
Remember, his disciples are dismayed because Jesus is getting more popular. The crowds are bigger going to Jesus. The, John the Baptist's encampment are, in, are fading. They're in the deer. Verse 31, John says, He who comes from above is from above. Well, you know, verse 30, he must increase and I must decrease. Then he gives you the basis for that. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony has set his seal on this, that God is true. For whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. That's, that's a remarkable testimony. Turn to, turn to chapter 5, where again, the issue of authority comes up. Jesus has made the even more audacious claim to be equal with God. He's, remember I told you he's, he's in sovereign, he's in control of the hour. Here's where he picks up the pace. He picks a fight with the Jews in Jerusalem. And he says boldly, my father's working until now and I'm working. And they get it. He's making himself equal with God. They want to kill him. And so naturally the issue of authority comes up. Look at 527. 527. And he has given him authority to execute judgment. Jesus' authority comes from the Father. Look at verse 30. We'll read 30 to 47. And here again, Jesus is establishing his basis for doing what he does, the basis on which we should receive him, the basis of his credibility and authority. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in this light, but the testimony I have is greater than John. So first witness, most many in Israel have received John as a prophet. John testified pretty clearly about me. That's not all. The testimony I have is greater than that. For the works that the Father has given me accomplish, the very works I am doing bear witness about me. Jesus' miracles, his signs authenticate him. They provide warrant for faith. They give him a basis to speak. That's what, that's what Nicodemus says. We know you're from God because no one can do the signs you're doing unless God is with him. That's not it. So he's got John the Baptist. We've got Jesus' works. Verse 37, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, which I think is a reference... To Jesus' baptism, where God speaks, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased, which isn't recorded in John's gospel. It's another place where I think the gospels might help give some, like John tells you the father's testified, and if you've read the other gospels, you know where the father has testified. And again, on the Mount of Transfiguration, which is also absent from John's gospel. And then finally, God's word. We gotta move. But the, the issue of Jesus' authority and the challenges to his authority and the basis for his authority really are a central theme in John's gospel. Um, which brings us to the final point I want to make. And that's Jesus reveals the glory and person of God. 
This is our last point we'll look at this morning. Jesus reveals the glory and person of God. If you turn back to chapter 1, we're just going to dip our toe into the beginning of John's gospel here. John will use many of the normal titles for Jesus. Messiah, the prophet, son of God, son of man. But before he does, he gives us two titles that are unique to John. And the first is the word. In the beginning was the word. And there is no end of speculation. What does John mean by word? And some people want to take it in Greek lines with logos and logic and image. Maybe, probably not. I think in some senses, John expects us to be confused with this title. He picks an enigmatic title so that as we read, he can fill in what he means by it. And I'm going to suggest to you that I think what John means as you read through the book is something like, in the beginning was God's own self-expression. Fundamentally tied up with the notion of Jesus being the word is God's self-revelation, God's communication, God's expression of himself. Look, look, at, look at 1, 14 through the end of the opening. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jump down to 16. For from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. Now get 18. No one has ever seen God. This is linking back to Moses up on Mount Sinai. Show me your glory. Moses, you can't see my glory and live. No one has beheld God's glory. The one who is at the Father's side, he has made him known, the ESV has. You could, you could translate that verb, translated him or expounded him. Jesus is the one who reveals the Father. Jesus is the one who images the Father. And, and that self-revelation of who the Father is, who God is, is central to John's book. In the beginning was the Word. Jump, jump over to 519. We're doing okay. We're doing okay. 519. John chapter 5 and John 17 probably are some of the deepest texts about understanding intra-Trinitarian relationships. We get some of the greatest clarity, the most detailed unpacking of what it means for the Son to be the Son, for the Father to be the Father. And right here in these few verses, we get the, the basis, the functional basis for some of Jesus' claims later in this book. So let's just look at this quickly. Remember, he's just said he's made himself equal to be with God. Verse 18, he's calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. So just slow down. Jesus limits his activity to only reflecting, only imaging, only doing what he sees the Father doing. Okay, that's good. But then the next statement makes this radical. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Now we'll look at this in more detail when we get there. 
But in essence, what Jesus is saying is this. The Father loves the Son, and one of the ways the Father demonstrates his love to the Son is a full and complete self-disclosure. God has revealed much of himself to us. He has not revealed the fullness of himself to us. As much light as we have, Paul can say we look through a glass dimly. We have much that God has revealed about himself to us in his word, in creation, in her conscience, but to the Son, a full self-revelation. And the Son's response in love is to do what he sees the Father does, plus or minus nothing. That then becomes the basis for Jesus saying things like what he says to the disciples in chapter 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If Jesus only does what he sees the Father do, plus or minus nothing, If he adds nothing and he takes nothing away, he only does what he sees the Father do. And if Jesus has full and complete access and knowledge of the Father, what do you get? You get the basis for, this is the one who reveals and images God. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's that's what you get. And John's gospel is really focused on this notion of Jesus revealing, imaging, bringing forth who God is. In John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. It's an amazing statement. One of the other unique features of John tying in with this, your next blank, is the I am statements. Showing us again that John is concerned with teaching us, filling in who Jesus is. If Jesus is the image and the glory of the Father, if Jesus' glory is glories of the only begotten from the Father, if Jesus does nothing plus or minus from what he sees the Father do, then when Jesus tells us who he is and what he does, we're learning about God. Quickly, John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I'm the true source of life and sustenance. I'm the food that you need to live. John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. John 9, 5, again, I am the light of the world. John 10, 7 through 9, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. He's the one through whom we must enter. Verse 10, 10, chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Again, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. John eleven twenty five, outside of Lazarus' tomb, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, do you get how many times Jesus is telling us who he is? These bold declarations, I am, I am, I am. Chapter 15, I am the true vine. And of course, the jaw-dropping statement in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. Absolutely phenomenal. When Jesus is arrested, the same pattern happens again. Um, the, the English translations add a word that the Greek doesn't have that can confuse this somewhat. But let me, let me just read to you like a little bit of a woodenly literal translation. The Greek, ego me could be translated, I am he, or simply, I am. And in, in John 18, 4 to 6, it's just egoing me. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, This is the arrest, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, and the ESV says, I am he. I think 
he just the text is just egoing me. Judas betrayed him was standing there. When Jesus said to them, I am he, or just I am, they fell to the ground, which is an odd thing to do if someone just says, I am he. It makes more sense when a bunch of Jews fall to the ground if Jesus has declared the divine name, I am. So Jesus revealing the Father, Jesus telling us who he is, showing us who he is, making statements about himself is central to John, which brings us then to a final subpoint. If Jesus perfectly reveals the Father, plus or minus nothing, if you've seen him, you've seen the Father, that also sets up and explains Jesus' bold declarations that your response to him is your response to the Father. How you respond to Jesus is how you respond to God. John 5, 37 to 38, Jesus says, The Father who sent him has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. Wow! He's saying this to Pharisees, to Jews, religious people. You've not heard his voice. You don't have his word in you. What are you talking about? How can you say that? For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Because how you treat Jesus is how you respond to the Father and his word. John 5, 44 to 46. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? Do you think I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. No unbelieving Jew believes Moses. That, that's a radical statement. If you believed Moses, you'd believe me. If you don't believe him, you don't believe Moses. Because how you deal with God, how you deal with his word, and how you deal with Jesus is a package deal. John chapter 8, verse 42 and 43. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here, and I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. I know God's not your father, Jesus says in John 8, because you don't love me. John 12, 44 to 45, Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. John 13, 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now it's extended even further. What you do with Jesus' apostles that he sends out is what you do with Jesus, which is what you do with the Father. So as we go through John's gospel, and as the worship team comes up and gets ready for our closing song, I would encourage you to consider this. Pay close attention. Look long and hard. Study this Jesus Ask that God might open your eyes to see his glory, because what you do with Jesus is what you do with God. There is no coming to the Father without coming through Jesus. There is no dealing with his word faithfully without dealing faithfully with Jesus. What you do with him is what you do with God, is what you do with his word, because he images God. He is the image of God. He reveals who God is. So let us look long and hard and thoroughly, and let us be changed.